This is an ABC podcast. So you want to become a professional academic philosopher. What are you going to do? Well, the first thing you need to think about is getting your work published in a reputable philosophy journal. But that can be more of a challenge than it might seem. And the reason for that is what we're talking about today. I'm David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone, where my guest this week has been doing a little historical research on the editorial ins and outs of philosophy journals. Hi, I'm Joel Katzev. I'm a philosopher. I work at the University of Queensland. I've been here for two years. I work in the philosophy of science, but also the history of philosophy of science, and especially the stuff that we'll be talking today. I work with a colleague called Chris Vazen. Joel Katzav and Chris Vazen have observed that if you look at any of the really prestigious, heavy-hitting English-language philosophy journals today, publications like the Journal of Philosophy or Mind or the Philosophical Review, what you'll notice is that their focus is largely on analytic philosophy, which is just one of a number of philosophical genres, but you'd be forgiven for reading these journals and coming away with the notion that philosophy in general and analytic philosophy in particular amount to more or less the same thing. Well, this bothers Joel Katzab for a number of reasons that we're about to get into, and it has a story behind it. It's the story of how analytic philosophy became the dominant mode of philosophy in the West at the expense of speculative philosophy. But first, a brief definitional introduction. What exactly do we mean when we talk about analytic and speculative philosophy? The difference, I suppose, is best explained that Traditionally, now this is—I'm not talking about analytic philosophy today, but the, the period that we're going to be talking about, 20th century, middle of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century. Analytic philosophy is characterized by it starts from what we know, whether it's common sense or science, and tries to unpack that. You know, what does we know commit us to in terms of how the world is, how reality is? So it's a, mostly about analyzing and figuring out our commitments and what our knowledge is actually. And standing on solid epistemic foundations. That's right. You start from things that you think, yeah, that's that's what we know, right? It's common sense or science. And then speculative philosophy thinks that's part of philosophy, that critical project of examining our presuppositions and figuring out what we're committed to. But speculative philosophy thinks that philosophy should do more than that. Philosophy should uh, uncover new facts about the world, teach us something substantially new that is independent to some extent from what science or common sense uh, teaches us. One of the most important forms of speculative philosophy at the end of the 19th century had this idea that reality is ultimately one big mind that we are somehow a part of. And that's the kind of view that a speculative philosopher might be willing to put forward. Given those distinctions, this discussion, I guess, is in part about the power that academic journals have or have had to shape the philosophical canon and perhaps even to determine the outlines of what philosophy is considered to be. Is that overstating the influence of these publications? No, I don't think it's overstating the influence of the publications. They are an important part of, you know, they have played an important role in determining how we think about philosophy. When you're a student, you introduce to philosophy, often via journal articles. If you have an introductory textbook, it's often a textbook that's based on stuff or arguments that are found in journals. So, and you take, you told that's the stuff you need to take seriously, right? So it really forms your idea about how to do philosophy, about what's important, who's important. And it continues to play a role in your career as a philosopher. Those of those students who go on to be philosophers, right? They, it, it's how they're judged in terms of do, you know, have they done their job properly? Are they going to get a good job at a good university? Are they not such a good job? If they, if they get a job at all? 
um, how they will proceed, whether they'll be promoted or not. All of that depends to a substantial extent on what the journals are uh, saying about you. Well, in illustrating the power of a publication like the Philosophical Review, mm -hmm. okay, uh, or Mind, that's another one that we're talking about, you've written about a case in the mid-20th century where the career of one very well-known philosopher was promoted while others who had done perhaps more interesting work were sidelined. It's a good example of the kind of thing we're talking about. What's the story there? I mean, th there are two stories here. On the one hand, there's the, the philosophical review story, the journal story and what happened in the journal. And then there's a story of what happened to the involved philosophers, which on the one hand are Quine, one of the most famous analytic philosophers, uh, uh, most influential analytic philosophers. And on the other hand, Theodore and Grace de Laguna, a uh, uh, married uh, philosophers who are virtually forgotten. In fact, just forgotten. <laughs> um, so the story of the Philosophical Review, that Philosophical Review is, you know, one of the key journals in America today, but certainly at the time, because at the time there were just a few journals. Maybe the only real alternative to it at the time was Journal of Philosophy. So, and the Philosophical Review was fine, you know, it was one from Cornell, the Sage School of Philosophy there, and uh, it was a pluralistic journal, open to diverse philosophical approaches, um, idealist approaches, pragmatist approaches, analytic philosophy, uh, positivism, and lots of other stuff featured in the journal. It was part of, you know, um, the way the founders of the journal, for example, Crichton, one of the founding generation, important editor, that's how they thought of the journal. Okay, as, as catering to a variety of traditions. It, it used to publish some academic work from India, including some Indian philosophers, so it was open to Indian, uh, modern Indian academic philosophy. In the 20s, if you look at you see that Crichton is giving room for women, a surprising number of women, which you wouldn't expect to see at the time. Um, so that's basically what the journal was like in uh, the first half of the century. But then in 1948, uh, the school is basically come to be dominated by analytic philosophers. Some of the older editors retire, and the analytic philosophers uh, decide to exclude any non-analytic work or almost any non-analytic work from the journal from roughly 1948, and that happens very quickly. So before that, you see there's a diversity of types of philosophy found in the journal uh, to a substantial extent, and immediately after that, it's just basically analytic philosophy. And this is a sectarian thing, is that they just, they happen to be analytic philosophers, they don't like non-analytic philosophy, and that's why this happens? They think that's the right way of doing philosophy, sufficiently that they don't think that everybody within the philosophical community needs to agree with them about this. Um, and yes, and on that basis, you know, they are critical philosophies. You can think of analytic philosophy as a kind of critical philosophy. And they think that somehow speculative philosophy is irresponsible. Irresponsible. Yeah. It makes claims that are irresponsible. So that they're acting on that kind of view. And the result is just a journal that's committed to analytic philosophy. Now, the impact of that is that a lot of famous, well-known philosophers from the first half of the century are just completely forgotten. Okay. Two of those philosophers are Grace and Theodore de Laguna. Okay. Who, who were doing similar work to Quine, I, I understand. Yeah. So... They were part of a discussion uh, which was similar to a discussion that happened much later on and that Quine initiated, I suppose. The key claims that are relevant here are, do we know anything that is not fallible? You know, do we know mathematics with certainty or logic with certainty? And the Dragunas, like other people in the 1910, around about that time, 1910, thought, no, mathematics too and logic too is fallible. 
Okay. And that's again, that's a claim that Quine would make later on in 1950. Another claim they were interested in is whether you test hypotheses in isolation apart from other hypotheses, or whether you need to bring to be your whole system of beliefs or large portions of your system of belief in order to evaluate a particular claim. And they, they develop a sophisticated version of the view that, no, you need to take your whole system of belief or large portions of your systems of belief in order to evaluate claims. It's called confirmation holism. Again, a claim Quine defended later on in 1950, but they were evaluating, considering, developed in 1910. So they were doing that. Now, in 1950, what happens is that Grace and Quine, uh, uh, Grace de Laguna and, and Willard Quine, they're invited to uh, give papers. She is supposed to represent the speculative philosophy. He is supposed to represent critical philosophy, the state of the art of critical philosophy. She's state of the art of speculative philosophy. And that's the paper that made him played an important role in making him famous, making him one of the most important philosophers. He wasn't really famous before. I mean, if you look at you know, the number of articles that discuss him in the 1950s in the prominent journals, not many. It only starts, it's actually in 1940s, even fewer. So it only starts around then that he really is becoming famous. And what happens to Grace Stilaguna's paper? Oh, she doesn't do much more than summarize the main figures in Spectrum of Philosophy, doesn't mention any of her own work, really. And it's just forgotten. Just like the rest of her work, it's forgotten. Because she was a speculative philosopher, that was enough to exclude her. They just basically, anything that speculative philosophers had been saying was not brought into the story of philosophy or was excluded from the story of philosophy if it hadn't been introduced into it. So the, I mean, the resulting narrative is a kind of, there was, an, there, was, there was philosophy, then came analytic philosophy, and after that, you don't really mention the other stuff. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because one of the, as you've mentioned, one of the consequences of this marginalization of non-analytic philosophy is that we see Indian philosophy largely disappearing from English language philosophy journals, where it had been flourishing up and up to the mid-20th century, up until the early and mid-20th century. So, what happened there? I would sl phrase it slightly different. There was an openness to Indian philosophy, and a flourishing, so there was a limited, limited amount, there was openness to Indian philosophy in the top journals. And after that, it's not that it completely disappeared, it moved to less prominent journals. Right. It was no longer allowed to appear in those journals, okay? So, it used to appear in Philosophical Review until about 1948, which is the date we've been talking about. After then, it continues to appear in Western journals, but, for example, in Philosophy East and West, which is only founded in 1950, specifically to accommodate not just Western philosophy, right? And again, because it's fallen foul of this rigorous adherence to analytic philosophy only as an editorial policy? Not just, but I think, yes, that's an important part of it, yeah. So, the speculative philosophers who, including the, those who were running the journals at the time, thought it was important to um, look at Eastern philosophy. So, for example, the, the editors of the Philosophical Review invite writers from China and India in 1948 to contribute some papers to the journal to discuss how Eastern and Western philosophy should get together. Uh, there are edited collections at the time that appear in which, uh, you know, Indian philosophers edit uh, work by philosophers from the West and from India and from other places uh, to discuss comparative philosophy. So, it was a project that was important to a lot of speculative philosophers at the time whereas it was not important to analytic philosophy. They just looked at it as part of, uh, you know, the stuff we need to exclude.
But th- there seems to be something else going on there uh, other than just this kind of philosophical sectarianism, if you want to call it that, because you, you write about a second generation of Indian philosophers who were influenced by analytic philosophy, but they, didn't, they still didn't make it into these leading journals. What was the story with them? I got this distinction from Sharad Deshpande as a philosopher, and you know he identified what he called a first generation of Indian philosophers, and that was roughly until about starting 1910-14, and then a second generation. And he claims that the second generation was more analytically oriented than the first generation. And it's true that even the more analytically oriented second generation philosophers don't make it into those exclusive journals like Philosophical Review and Journal of Philosophy. Because of some sort of Western bias? No, I still think it has to do with what analytic philosophy was rather than because of a Western bias. Because analytic philosophy was, a, you know, especially at the time, it changes. At the time, it was not just critical philosophy. It was a certain kind of critical philosophy. Uh, and you had to cite the right authors. And these writers from, from India were a bit off from their perspective. That's, this is a guess, right? Because I really mm. can't know. But this is my best explanation of what happened. You know, so for example, one of the things that is important to analytic philosophy is linguistic analysis, you know, figuring out the meaning of important concepts. Okay. Like what is the you know, concept of existence? That might be an example. Now, how you do analyst linguistic analysis can vary a lot. And the Indian, some of the Indian contributions that did get published in, say, Journal of Philosophy before it was closed down to non-analytic stuff. They did linguistic analysis, but it was a bit weird. It looked at contextual cultural factors in the analysis, which is not what people in analytic philosophers in America were doing. And I think that was enough to get them out of the journal. Or it cited philosophers that were out of favour. Do we see the dominance of analytic philosophy continuing to the present day? Because I came up through a, a more continental philosophical mm-hmm. um, education, and certainly you know, the the you know post structuralism, post modernism, whatever you want to call it, it, it seems to have a very robust presence on the international philosophy scene with its own major journals, mm-hmm. um, but still not dominant. You would say, yeah. I mean, th- there are journals for continental philosophy. They don't have the prestige of the analytic journals, the top analytic journals, and. One of the reasons you might think that continental philosophy doesn't have the same emphasis on journal publication is that the, its journals are not as prestigious. In, this, in, within continental philosophy, there's a tradition of working with books, more so. And I think part of the reason is that when continental philosophy was developing in America, the journals were all controlled by analytic philosophers who were not going to let them in. So, uh, that's th- so that they had to develop a book tradition. This is RN. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and I'm talking with Joel Katsav from the University of Queensland. He's telling the story of how analytic philosophy came to be established as the dominant philosophical mode in academic journals, what some of the consequences of that dominance have been, and how the situation might be turned around. Let's turn to the uh, history and philosophy of science, because you also write about the way in which the, this marginalisation of non-analytic philosophy has affected the development of the philosophy of science. What's the story there? In uh, Just after World War II, I guess, the American government starts to pump in more money into universities, into research. Um, that includes funding for the sciences. Initially, uh, you know, 
in the early 1950s, there wasn't a lot of funding for the social sciences. It had to do with McCarthyism and worries about supporting left-wing academics or something like that. But the second half of the 1950s saw the first in the National Science Foundation, government-funded, started giving money to the social sciences, including to the history and philosophy of science. And how this money was used is just another of the many examples in which analytic philosophy used its control of institutions to you know, marginalize certain kinds of philosophers and promote others. In this case, on the one hand, you had the logical empiricists, certain approach to philosophy of science, thinking of, of, of philosophy of science primarily uh, in terms of the analysis of scientific knowledge, the logic of scientific knowledge. Uh, on the other hand, you had philosophers of science who were not analytic philosophers of science, maybe pragmatist philosophers of science. They thought, yes, the analysis of scientific knowledge was part of philosophy of science, but there was also a normative, an important normative part to philosophy of science that involved you know, considering political, social questions about philosophy of science. Moral questions. Moral questions. And you can see that what happens is that when the funding from the NS NSF starts to go to philosophers of science, it basically just goes to logical empiricists or people who are working in that kind of, not to anybody dealing with the normative questions or virtually not to anybody dealing with the normative questions. So do we see then a, um, a withdrawal from social and moral and political concerns on the part of philosophy of science? Does it shape how philosophy of science is done at, at this time? Yep. So that, that's exactly the idea. It wasn't, of course, it wasn't just the National Science Foundation, the, you know, the main philosophy of science journal, philosophy of science also moved in that direction. So it was turned into a journal for analytic philosophy of science and towards the end of the 50s. And collectively, the, res the result is plausibly thought to be that Philosophy of science that engaged with these kinds of questions and normative issues was not important for a while in philosophy of science. There's, there's been uh, a return. More of that happens these days, but it, it took a while for that to start coming back. And around the time that we're talking about, the, the late 1950s and throughout the 60s, you say that there were philosophers of science writing on social and moral and political issues. What sorts of issues would these have been? A variety of issues. For example, Marxism. Uh, communism, right? So you have two philosophers of science, one Sidney Hook um, and then another Lewis Feuer and both were anti-communists. You know, they started out not being anti-communists but maybe during World War II changed their minds. So part of their work was a criticism of, of communism for example. Another example of Sir Feuer, one of the things he was interested in was how a certain kind of emotional, what kind of human being, what kind of emotions, what kind of social context is required for science. So that was part of his investigation that he did. Um, Hooke was a kind of pragmatist, Deweyan pra pragmatist, and he, like influenced by Dewey, he thought of democracy as being somehow informed by the scientific method. It's one of the characteristics of democracy, on the one hand, was diversity, but also kind of the use of a kind of method for dealing with problems, so a kind of application of a scientific method within society. There's not to say that we just, everything that was lost has come back, okay? There are certainly ways in which philosophy is, and philosophy of science is done today that is still affected by what happened then. Um, I, for example, somebody like Hooke and the De Lagunas, for that matter, didn't do philosophy of science in a way that detached it from general concerns about knowledge, concerns about everyday knowledge. Or they thought of these questions as continuous and they dealt with them all kind of together. Whereas today, philosophy of science still largely kind of proceeds autonomously without paying much attention to these other fields. And I think that's one of the kinds of effects that has stayed with us.
So if we look at the current peer review practices mm. in the leading philosophy journals, do we still see the sort of partisanship that we see if, if we look back at the 50s and 60s? In a nutshell, I think so, yes, we do. I mean, philosophy has changed a lot since then. Uh, analytic philosophy has changed. It's much more diverse than it was today than it was then, for example. But it's still the case that the most important journals are taken to be analytic journals. And it's still the case that, you know, that, that involves a kind of control of the standards by which work is accepted and rejected. And that determines to an, uh, an important extent, you know, how you do in your career. What gets... Uh, more noticed, more influence, and so on. I mean, there's some signs of change. Some journals are, like, for example, uh, um, Mind has, the journal Mind has said that it no longer is just for analytic philosophy and that it's open to diverse approaches to philosophy. You have to take that with a pinch of salt because all the editors um, are still what I would consider to be analytic philosophers. And, and you look at the contents, the content is still pretty much what you'd expect. But at least there is some move in the right direction there. Yeah, you mentioned standards. I mean, that's an interesting issue in itself, isn't it? You have this problem of the extent to which we can determine objective standards for assessing philosophical work. Yeah, that's a serious issue in philosophy. Um, I mean, what happened, you know, in terms of marginalisation of approaches to philosophy wasn't so much because it's hard to determine what the standards were, but because it was not sufficiently realized by some philosophers that it is hard to determine what the appropriate standards in philosophy were, or they did not sufficiently appreciate how hard it was. So yes, it, there is an issue in philosophy about what the appropriate standards are, and it looks like because it's so hard to do so, you, you really should be open to diverse approaches. Do we see in, in analytic philosophy, do we see more of a sense that an acceptable philosophical paper is one that gets things right, that answers questions correctly? Is that more a sort of a, is that more an approach of analytic philosophy and less of an approach of speculative philosophy? No, uh, most of the speculative philosophers and were uh, aiming to get at the truth. So speculative philosophers and analytic philosophers generally aim to get at the truth. Um, there were differences about how you could get at the truth and the extent to which you could get at the truth. I think Ironically, speculative philosophers were much more realistic at, in the middle of the 20th century um, about how difficult it is to get to the truth. For them at the time, in the middle of the 20th century, one of the most important questions was, well, how do we do philosophy, given that we have such very different ways of doing it? And they've come up with such different perspectives on, say, reality or knowledge. What do we do with that? You know, how do we build a way of, how do we you know, construct a way of doing philosophy that takes that into account? Whereas some of the leading analytic philosophies, and at, at an institutional level, at the journal level, in general in analytic philosophy at the time, there was a kind of feeling that that's the way to do it. There are certain questions we know we can't answer, the ones that maybe the speculative philosophers are interested in just, and uh, so we need to leave those aside insofar as, you know, the, the, insofar as we can do philosophy and can answer its questions, this is the way to do it. We know how to do it. So if we wanted to see these leading journals developing a, uh, an editorial policy which is uh, more pluralistic, if you like. How do you think that could happen, uh, particularly with regard to the peer review method? How could it be improved? Um, the, there are different ways you can improve it. I mean, the starting point is obviously to diversify editors and those involved in peer review, so to have more diverse editors to make sure that your editors are not just from one tradition, from, from different traditions. That's one thing you can do. 
Um, another thing you can do is to make it easier to get into journals. So it's very hard to get in the top philosophy journals. You have places with acceptance rates like 5%. Um, so it's very hard to get into that journals, and that tends to uh, reduce diversity. So you could lower uh, acceptance rates. You could also learn from the sciences. One of the amusing things about philosophy is that it's the most conservative field when it comes to peer review practices, right? So uh, I, when I work on, on climate sciences and you find in the um, European Geophysical uh, uh, Union, you find that they have journal practices which would, could be useful in philosophy. So one of the things they do is um, their peer review practice involves putting the paper online and having the peer review process open so people can see the peer review process. The reviews are published alongside the paper. So that can be seen. And indeed, interested parties can add their own commentary on the paper. So it's not just the people invited by the editors get to do the reviewing. Okay. So if you have a particularly hot contested paper, you can sometimes see dozens of, <laughs> of people chiming in. That would be a way of making the peer review process more transparent, uh, making it more rigorous. That's, that's another thing you could do. It would also lower the bar for acceptance into mm -hmm. some of these high prestige journals, though, wouldn't it? And you could argue that that would result in a compromising of the quality of what gets published. That's the idea. I mean, if, if, if what you mean by quality is the standards that are currently employed, the idea is precisely not to insist on those standards because there is no good basis for insisting on those standards. We, d we do not know what the, you know, the reliable way of doing philosophy to answer these fundamental questions about the nature of reality. So you don't want to just impose one set of standards. So you do want in that sense to allow different standards and thus by the set of standards that are current, you will have a reduction in the standards. Of course, you might say, okay, but, but what about, you know, those who are doing analytic philosophy, won't that, won't that mean that more analytic philosophy that is not according to their highest standards is being published? Um, well, not if you have an improved peer review process in place, for example. That might actually make things better. And there's actually even an even more radical thought, which is that peer review is not obviously a good thing. And this is, doesn't apply just to philosophy. Peer review is a way of bypassing research. That is to say, instead of evaluating an article by doing some more research to see if that article is right or useful or whatever you want to, however you want, whatever standard you want to employ there, you sit down for three years and you criticize it and the paper is rejected. So... There are worries about peer review itself, about whether it is actually a good way of doing things, not just in philosophy, but in the sciences as well. So even that might be something that you might start thinking about, whether you, this actually might be good because this is a way of bypassing peer review. I can just imagine, though, a professional academic philosopher sitting up very straight at this point and saying, well, just a minute, my career, my, um, my standing in the academic community is very much dependent on the very fact that it's difficult to get stuff published in these journals. There's a question there, I suppose, about um, academic certification and how it affects the careers of philosophers. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what publications are supposed to do. They are used in certifying academics. And what this will mean is that publications, while they will still remain important, the publications themselves won't be as important and other things will have to be uh, found in order to certify. And that will affect how philosophy is done. It'll affect how much you publish. It might discourage you from publishing as much. It might encourage you to focus on other things such as the quality of the work or the impact of the work. It might encourage you to focus on other things in your academic life. Public communication. Public communication. Speaking on the radio. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the idea. It's a good thing. <laughs> 
Joel Katsav from the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. And that is a wrap from the Philosopher's Zone this week. Find us via the ABC Listen app or the RN homepage. Leave us a comment about this program or any of our programs. You're a disputatious bunch and we love to hear from you. And of course, subscribe to the podcast if you want to make sure you don't miss a single program. Our producer is Diane Dean. I'm David Rutledge. See you next time. Thank you.